Now it's True Wealth presented by Little John Financial Services. Here is David Littlejohn with True Wealth on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome to the True Wealth Radio Show. I'm your host, Dave Littlejohn. Joining me in studio today on this, the best Tuesday you've had all week. Matt Dixon. Matt, stoked to be I here. I am. We missed you last week. Well, I appreciate being missed. It's uh, you know better than the alternative of, I guess, like, no, we didn't want you around at all. So <laughs> that, would, that would be lame. But um, So anyway, and meanwhile, I'm trying to make, uh, I need to enter the studio again because we're live streaming, right? Yeah, we missed so. it last week, but we're making up for it by getting back to it this week. Good so deal. join on that and so, leave some comments I so that we can chat. And I think... I am back and live. There we go. And of course, you've got your volume on your phone up. <laughs> okay, so what are we going to cover today? Uh, first of all, last week we had Justin in studio because I was MIA, right? And did did I did you guys spill the beans on where I was? No. Okay. Well, you know somebody has to go and fix this market. It. Yes, we needed some help because it was hurting. Right, and so uh, we went to New York City. I actually did go to Wall Street. I was there and uh, gave them a piece of my mind, right? And then clearly from there, the, the week ended positive. So very effective. I take full and complete credit for that uh, output. And what happened today when you got back? Yeah, everything fell. So clearly they're like, oh, Dave's back in Oregon. We're well, not everything. No, energy was energy up again. was okay, and of course I'm joking, but uh, it was uh, something that had been. Believe it or not, that trip to New York had been planned since 2019, and wow, that's it took a long that time to long making. to finally get there. Well, you know, COVID threw us all a curveball. Mm -hmm. So, anyway, it was a good trip. Took the the family with me, and uh, was I'm happy to say it didn't work a ton on the trip. Okay, but as is so often the case there's an opportunity to really so when you, when you take that mental break from work you kind of recharge the batteries you come back with new ideas and new vigor and excitement for things so i am excited to be back and back to work so we're good to go nice now the question on that i want to address and so uh, i will i'm going to say i'm going to be really selfish today okay i'm really selfish because all of you listening of course we're live streaming this it's on facebook and youtube but uh, we will also we send like a rebroadcast out since it's podcasted and so our subscribers get to check that out but we'll be pushing some of this out so our clients can listen to this as well because i want to address i think some of the psychology gaps that folks are struggling with right now and yes i really think it's a psychology issue about like what's going on in the marketplace right now and how do how should we be looking at this as investors, especially, I have noticed a lot of people that their time horizon has really shifted. And I think it's just, it's the, the natural emotional response to things. And so I want to talk a little bit about how we, what some of the things that we do that are normal, but they're not a good response. Okay. Okay. So do you yeah. have like some main talking points today? So it's not that they're talking points. I'm not big on talking points, believe okay. it or not, because I always feel like that's somebody's trying to craft a narrative to manipulate you. No, mm -hmm. that's not what I want to do. But let's use some examples of 
how folks may uh, take data and misinterpret it and then it leads to poor results. Okay, and we're gonna start with something completely unrelated to the market, but let's talk about air travel, okay? Like hopping on a flight? Hopping on an airplane. All right. Okay? Now, most of us out there know some people that are not only afraid of heights, but deathly afraid that if they get in an airplane, that's gonna be the plane that crashes. I feel like that's more common than people think, and yep. it kind of blows my mind because obviously I don't have a fear of an airplane, but a lot of people really do. Right. Here's the thing that's important, okay, to just keep in mind. I mean, here's, the point is that what we will often do is we will associate something that occurs in our life. If something were to occur, all of a sudden we will misapply statistics and greatly overweight them mm -hmm. after a tragedy. So as an example, uh, somebody that you know dies young, like you know somebody in their 40s has a heart attack and dies. And so then everybody wants to run out and buy life insurance. Mm -hmm. Now, the reality is you should buy life insurance if you have an insurable need, mm -hmm. okay? And so that's, that's the thing. If, if you have a need for life insurance, you should get it, okay? Uh, the person though that what motivates them is, well, this other person just died. Like nothing in your life statistically changed. You just had an event that occurred close to you that changed your attitude about urgency, but your statistics right. are the same. Statistically, commercial aviation is probably the safest form of transportation on the planet. I mean, I guess you make a good point because your chances of getting in a car wreck are much greater than ever crashing Even in an airplane. if you look at the number of people that get on trains compared to planes, mm -hmm. there's probably more uh, injuries or From a deaths derailment associated or with trains yeah. than there are associated with aircraft when we consider volume. I may be mistaken about that. I haven't looked it up. Uh, and it, I guess it depends on how you define train because there's like subway systems and they run a lot of people all the time. And so... Um, you know, that's a pretty safe mechanism too. But people, I mean, if you have a heart attack on a subway, is the subway unsafe? That's a statistic, right? Same on an airplane. But here's the thing. Every now and then, a plane does crash. Mm -hmm. Like, it does happen. And but recently, we've actually kind of seen a little bit more of that with the issues that we've seen in some of the new construction on the planes but that's kind of a separate well, i mean topic. i assume you're kind of hinting at the uh, the 737 max. max yeah right and that's not even recent anymore by the way that was pre-covid yeah right so we haven't seen i guess it depends those. on your definition but so that and and how many crashes were there i think there was three or something two. yeah was it two right? so they they had two crashes and uh it was an issue that and and i've had this conversation before with people where it wasn't an airworthiness issue of the aircraft like the aircraft mm -hmm. was capable of flying it was a software issue for how the autopilot and the trim system worked and uh that you know people pilots not and you know they said without proper instruction ended up in a in a runaway trim situation we don't need to go into that on on the show but uh, i did some homework into this one right because okay. it's like well what does that really mean and the reality is that those planes did go down and people lost their lives and that's a genuine tragedy but we've had thousands and thousands of flights since then, daily, 
and people don't die. I mean, we, we move millions right. of people through the air in commercial aviation without people dying. Whereas every single day we're losing people in car wrecks. Right. Yeah. And we're losing people in other ways. Too. I mean, like we are more scared of dying in an airplane than we are dying of complications of obesity. Yep. Right. But the reality is obesity is killing more people. Mm hmm. But it's sort of a slow killer, and you know, and, and it's also that infringes on somebody's lifestyle. And so all of a sudden, it's like, oh, are you fat shaming or something? I'm like, whoa, whoa, because careful. No, I'm not doing any of that. I am saying, people, we need to take a step back and look at the statistics of what's going on. Now I'm curious how you're going to loop this back into the markets. I well, know you've got an angle here, and I'm it's, curious. It's again, it's not an angle. Uh -huh. It is about helping folks to see more of the picture. When the stock market is down right now, for example, mm -hmm. people, when you are afraid, right? And, and we talked a little bit about this in our investment committee this morning, right? That markets really only move for two reasons, right? They move because uh, of a psychological event that, that makes people perceive that the, the value is different, mm -hmm. or there's a mechanical or structural issue that forces the market to move, okay? So a, a structural exploit, like the market has to move or the market wants to move. Those are right. kind of the two. Well, one of the things that happens that makes the market want to move is a change in perception, right? So are people afraid or are people optimistic? So in a down market, we have seen clients communicate with our firm. I have listened to other people that can give me any number of theories for how the world is going to end. Mm -hmm. And I ask you, Statistically speaking, can you handicap the probability of this outcome? Tell, what do you think the percentage of, of chance is? Like, what are the odds that we're in World War III, Russia starts lobbing nukes, they've targeted London as their first strike, and that happens? What do you think are the odds that, that that's how it plays out? Right. And there will be some people that say, I think it's higher than you think. And I go, you don't know what I think, first of all. <laughs> and second of all, you tell me, what is the number? Is it a one in 10 chance, a one in 100, a one in a million chance, a one in one chance? Like, you know, oh, it's happening, right? Or what? Right, because if it's a one in a thousand chance, is that what you're going to base your decision making on? Right, because that means you have a 999 other opportunities out of a thousand that that's not what happens. Exactly. And so then you go, well, so if you have a one tenth of 1% probability of an outcome, are you going to make all of your investment decisions around that betting the farm on that bud and so first of all this is about how to how does one ground themselves second of all we need to talk about a couple of other really significant data points for investors and what i'm hoping that we can do in today's conversation is break apart how how wealth gets created how it moves in the major macroeconomic system, maybe a little bit about how it moves in the markets, and then how we as investors and savers and wealth builders can analyze and position ourselves to take advantage or to protect. But there's some, I, I think it starts with data. So I wanna do is like, what, how can we use information to help us pump the brakes and examine whether or not our emotions are potentially leading us in the wrong direction. Okay. okay. So that is, I think, the, the, the key factor is, are you making a decision with your head or your heart? 
We're going to break this apart a little bit more, dig a little bit deeper. But first, we got to take this break. So stick around where we'll go through more fun. And you can join us on that live stream as well at YouTube and Facebook. But uh, we'll be right back. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You got True Well on News Radio 1240 KQEN. All right, gang. Welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show, where we are live, and Matt is fussing with his live stream. See, this is why we wear the headphones. Yeah, yeah, because because you're like, I don't like this other feedback loop. I don't. It's going to drive him nuts. Matt's going to say about four words for the rest of the day because he's going to be listening to himself about a half a second delay. See, I can't hear me, but I can hear you, so I hear you twice. That's why you wear the headphones. Yeah. Anyway. what we want to talk about, if you're just getting caught up, you can grab one, you can go to our live stream and you can watch it again. We'll post it later. So become a subscriber there. Two, podcasts, which we've been doing for a while. So grab that on your favorite podcast resources. But uh, we're talking about how wealth gets built. And then we're talking about the statistics underneath and where I call it the, the, the gap between your brain and your heart, right? Are you making decisions with your heart or are you making decisions with your brain? One of the things that uh, I see a lot, and this is, this is really normal, but it's not healthy if you want better outcomes from an investment perspective is confirmation bias, right? Or uh, data fitting. Now, these are two things. They, they kind of mean the same thing, but uh, confirmation bias is when you just go looking for the data that tells the story that you want to believe, okay? If you want to believe that you're going to you know, die in an earthquake, then you start looking up all the statistics that say you're going to die in an earthquake. Right. And you discard all the other ones, right? Well, that doesn't make sense. Uh, this can really, really happen. It happens in lots of debates right now. And if you really want to see somebody get mad, you know, pick a hotly debated topic and then start challenging the worldview of that person. Uh, one of them that comes to mind, and I'll just poke the bear because this is hilarious to me, is climate change. Okay. And it's like, well, which data are you going to use? And there'll be some people who are like, well, if we don't do something, we're all going to die. And there'll be other people who are like, uh, how do you know if anything we do is going to stop that? And why do you think we die? Right. And the reality is it kind of depends on which data and modeling and other things you're using. And some of it's also tribal because folks end up looking for the things that confirm the belief they already hold. Like if you believe we're on yeah. a crash course with death, then the data that you migrate toward will often confirm that. And the stuff that doesn't, you will say, well, that can't be right. Let me go find this other data that says why that's wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay. Confirmation bias. Data fitting is a little different. Okay. Data fitting happens a lot more in investing though, but it's, it's a similar concept, but data fitting is looking at the data to draw the conclusions that you were looking for, or, or here's, here's where I see it most commonly. People want to say, hey, look how great an investor I am. And so they go out and they build a hypothetical portfolio that says, well, if I'd have done these things, I would have been really successful. Right. And it's sort of like, oh, sure. Well, if I would have bought Apple stock back in 1990 and held it, you know, I'd be like a multimillionaire. I was like, well, did you do that? Well, no. But if you use the screening method that I've developed, it would have found the stock. And I go, but would you have developed the same screening method 20 years ago? If, yeah. Or exactly. 30 years ago. Like 30 years ago. Is would, your screening method yeah, set up Yeah, looking at the data, would you have been able to find that stock? And you could say, well, no. I mean, the screen, it was as if I was standing back then 
you know, I used the data from back then and used it. I said, would you have developed the screen in the first place? Like, mm -hmm. would you have known to look for those categorical markers if you didn't have all of the data to influence your decisions today? And what should you be screening for in the future? That's because it, right? Because like... I want to know, what could you pick today that's going to be the number one company 30 years from now? Mm -hmm. Today. And if you know that secret... Call me. <laughs> right? You know, see me after class, right? But that's data fitting, is after the fact, you know certain things to be true, and so you sneak those into your analysis so that it shows, shows to be true. It's like validating your theory. Well, you're dear data fitting, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's why data fitting and confirmation bias live together. But I think that that's part of... Now, the, the, what we are talking about earlier, that whole idea of when people misassess a statistic, that's not data fitting, okay? That's literally just misassessing things, and that's, that's a... <laughs> Another one, like when we we think the probability is higher than it is, uh, this shows up in uh, what do they call it, like a confidence bias or something like that, where most people, like if you're listening to this, like you probably think you're luckier than average. I mean, if you think you're unlucky, that's sad. But a lot of people are like, you know what? I'm going to play the lottery because I'm going to be the one. Mm -hmm. Right. Or because you'll say, even though your odds are effectively and statistically zero, you're like, but somebody has to win. So you throw your hat in the ring anyway. And every, and because somebody does win, you're like, so you're saying there's a chance. Right. Like, like that's could exactly happen. right. It doesn't happen. It's your chance is zero. And I, I realize it's not actually zero, but it's so astronomically against you that it's a voluntary tax. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, oh, I'm just paying this into the kitty because I nobody takes out more than they put in except for the one random person. The and one in it's a hundred million. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then that in and of itself is a really skewing statistic. Right. Because now what you have is uh, 300. Let's say 100 million people make nothing virtually and one in 100 million gets a big payday. And so odds of being one in 100 million are zero, statistically, like, like, like it's such a rounding error. So when you go, yeah, but somebody won, it goes, ah, God, golly. But, but here's the other, here's a fun statistic, right? Real one, that your odds are greater that you will be killed by an asteroid than die in a plane crash. Now this wow. illustrates is that, is that true? It, it is. It illustrates a flaw in statistics, by the way. You know why? Because if we get hit by an asteroid, everybody dies. Right? Not everybody dies in a plane crash. Most of the world survives. But an asteroid takes out the whole population. What if it's a tiny little asteroid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it just takes out a continent, right? Yeah. So but that's the issue, right? Is that you can you can make the numbers say what you want them to say if you manipulate them. Mm -hmm. The problem is if you buy into that and you don't have a counterbalance to the emotions, then your you know your fear matrix or your greed matrix will pick up on those things and lead you toward decisions. So why do I tell us this? Well, because we I have folks that say things like, "Hey, we should get out of the market." You know, stock market's down. Like you know. The major indexes are all in bear market territory and 20% or something. We should, we, we need to go to cash and wait for a better time to buy. And my question is, how much farther down do you think the market will go if it's already lost a third of its value? Mm -hmm. And then people say things like, well, I think it's going to go down another 50%. I go, well, 
what makes you think that? And what data supports that? And what data have you discarded that doesn't speak to that narrative? They let fear just kind of drive the, the, the ship. All of those become elements. And, and then there are things like people say, well, you know, the market's never going to come back. That might be true. But it's not statistically and historically probable. Mm-hmm. Right? So, again, I go, casinos aren't built on winners. They're built on losers, right? Because the house knows the odds. So that's my question to our investors is, how are you making the odds? How are you making your predictions? I like the way you put that. That's that's good. Because, I mean, really, like, you can make yourself the loser by just taking yourself completely out of something when... And then I mean, when do you get back in, right? I mean, say you pull the money, right? Say mm-hmm. you're like, you know what? I just can't handle the heat anymore. I'm done. You pull the trigger and then the market goes up 5%. Do you put your money back in? Oh, well, now it's up 6%. Do you? Are you waiting for it to go back right. down? Now it's up 10%. And then it runs away from you and here you are having to either stay out and wait for it one day to come back down and then you lose all of the upside. So it's really almost an impossible thing to perfectly time. Well, and yeah, to perfectly time, I would just throw my hands up and go, no. Yeah. I don't care who you are or what algorithm you have unless you have cheating information, Mm -hmm. right? So that's illegal information that's guiding you. We don't And even if you have that, Right, like even if you have that, like it's that would still be so how, difficult to get it just right. How many hundreds of thousands of people are studying this on a moment-to-moment basis, looking for an exploit, mm-hmm. and and nobody unlocks that. I mean, a handful of people are good traders, but I don't know any traders that have a hundred percent win rates, except for the cheaters. Mm-hmm. And uh, and when I say that, let me let me explain what I, what I mean. There are some high-frequency traders right, that are able to essentially front run other orders. So they see the orders that are coming down the pike and they can get in front of them and, and position to when be those orders over. execute and the price moves up, then they sell and, so and take a game. When you start to see these companies like they have zero losing days for a year, mm-hmm. okay, I can only explain that as you're cheating. Mm-hmm. Because when I say, well, show me how you did it. No, we can't show you. It's a trade secret. Cheater. Right. It's not a trade secret. It's something that you could maybe legislatively and legally hide, but that's an exploit. Mm-hmm. Nobody bats a thousand in this market. Nobody, right? Because systems hate exploits. So when there is an exploit, other people try to exploit it too, and it stops being an exploit because then it becomes a known event. So this isn't an information advantage, if but unless nobody else can see it too. In like which case, need- guess what? That's cheating. I feel it's like inside info. <laughs> we need a like a stock mall, uh, stock market hall of fame, where like we look at people's actual odds and say, you know, hey, you you bat, um, you know, six hundred. We're putting you in the hall of fame. You were you were right sixty percent of the time. So you know, yeah, you get, you I, get a spot on the shelf. I sure it's a fun concept, right? I don't yeah. know how you execute it, but whatever. I don't think that's or what's even your point, measure right? it. It's yeah. just like ah, you know, wouldn't that be cool if you if you do that? And it kind of would, but in a sense, right? Uh, your returns would reflect that, wouldn't mm-hmm. they? Oh, they would. Ah, uh, but would they? Well, it right? depends. Because the bigger you get, 
the harder it is to exploit the market because mm -hmm. you become the market as your accounts get bigger and bigger and bigger, right? If you became if you owned everything, you are the market. Mm -hmm. So at some point, you can't exploit the market because you are the market. Right. You're saying like if you were the main trading person in theory at one of the largest financial institutions, when you go to make a purchase in, say, Apple, that purchase actually like physically shifts the entire yeah, it's, flow. Well, like Warren Buffett makes a buy and it moves the market. Right. Everybody's That's watching a good what example. he does. It's not like it's a sneaky thing, uh, although it kind of is in that they can make purchases and then they don't have to report them until they, I think they're 10Q, so that, which is the quarterly report of what they were acquiring or not. And then so, people go out and make moves based off of what they see. And then they do after the see. fact, but yeah, they're able to either start adding to or reducing their positions in a quarter before they formally notify everybody and say like, all right, well, so people want to get on the coattails of what's mm -hmm. happening there, but it already happened. Right. So anyway, the, the whole reason for me painting this backdrop is because I've had a lot of people that have, maybe not a lot, but I've had a handful of people that have been really vehement that this market is not only ugly, but it's it's on the verge of catastrophe. And here's, here's my point, like, how many people agree with you? because you need lots of people to believe this market's on the brink of catastrophe and they all have to behave that way. If if all the people that were panicked are already out of this market, like how many more people can panic from here? Mhm. Mm Cuz at some point that's what capitulation looks like. It's you just run out of the people that are panicking. And you go, "All right, well now there's buyers that are left over because all the people that are freaking out have already sold and they're not coming back." So the disposition, like the supply-demand imbalance has shifted because the demand has essentially corrected to a point where supply and demand have met at the new lower price point, and now people are like, eh, it's just too cheap, I gotta go buy it. So in that goofy sense, this will blow your mind, right? But um, all the different fundamental data points for the value of a stock don't, that's not really what makes the price of the stock be the price of the stock. Mm -hmm. It's simply the psychology of the group and whether or not people can rationalize owning it. They can use all those data points to rationalize it, but does the data move the stock or does the person's willingness to spend the money move the stock? Yeah, the, the willingness to spend the money is where that comes from. Now, there is another circumstance where it's not just about whether or not they're willing to spend the money. You want to know what that is? I do. I'll tell you after this break. Okay. All right, gang. Stick around. We got to take a quick obscene profit break for the station. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM and 1240 KQEN. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Dave Littlejohn in studio with Matt Dixon. And if you are just joining us, reminder, podcast will be available tomorrow and you can catch up on that one. And for those folks that join us on the live stream, uh, there's a little bit of show where it turns out we were not live streaming. That was technical error, but we're up and live now. Uh, and I'm going to catch everybody up super fast, right? The first one is what have we been talking about today, right? First of all, the idea that uh, we oftentimes, our emotions and our brains are in conflict with each other. 
that your emotions can lead you to misinterpret statistics and as a result, you can misinterpret data. And then what we do is we end up starting to rationalize the things that we want to believe. And that rationalization process can be dangerous, right? Because all of a sudden we're saying, hey, this is this data set that I, and here's the outcome that I believe is going to happen. So I'm looking for the data to confirm this. And we talked about everything from how you know, people may have an irrational fear of like air travel, for example. Statistically, mm-hmm. you're way safer to travel by air than probably walk on a sidewalk. Yep. But uh, people believe that, well, some people die in plane crashes, which is real. So they just won't get on a plane. And then the flip side of it is that we can be overconfident in our chances and do ridiculous things, too, like people playing the lottery when there's statistically no chance of winning. Mm-hmm. One in not even 100 million. That was the example I used earlier. But like the odds of picking all of the Powerball sequence correctly is like one in... 36 point something. I don't know. It's astronomical, right? And so that doesn't just happen because it's so flipping hard. Now, the reality is, yes, it does happen. Somebody wins. So it's not actually zero, but it may as well be zero, right? It's statistically zero because the, the, the chance is so small that no person in their right mind would ever do that and expect it to happen. Like what happens is you do that and you're just like praying somehow that it would happen. Mm-hmm. And, and then even there, and the dirty little secret is even if you win, most people don't know how they would properly manage it. And so it can ruin your life, but whole separate issue for a different show some other time. We're talking about before the last break, how the markets price things. Okay. And much of it is psychological in nature. Meaning that, yeah, I realize there's all this data about whether or not the company's profitable and whether or not it's got cash on the balance sheet and whether the employees are happy, all those different things. But all that is, is somebody justifying through the data that they're searching for a reason to own the stock. And it can work both ways. Because when I ask the question to people today, with consumer sentiment down and a lot of angry people right now because the news cycle you could find an issue that you're not happy about you know they're my political representatives don't represent me you can find that easily right so if people are angry and people are frustrated with the rising cost of everything around them okay you can find your issues but how are you going to justify the price you're willing to pay for an investment Okay, that's the mass psychology part. And so when somebody says, I believe the market's going to collapse from here, I go, well, tell me why. And then tell me what you think the odds of that occurring are. And the most common answer I get is a flippant answer, which is, well, I don't know. That's what you're for. I go, <laughs> but I don't think it's a high probability. So you need to explain to me why you think it's a high probability, because you need to get lots of people to mm-hmm. agree with you in order to get everybody to sell things off and have the price drop even further. Right. Like you need demand destruction to drive markets down further because nobody's willing to buy it. So the price will keep falling. Right. So how does the psychology of the buyers play into the supply and demand curve? And the other thing to think about in that equation, I feel like, is how much of it is institutional buying where there's there's a pro behind the desk making these trades versus, you know, your everyday common retail investor yeah because i mean you got to think like retail investors yeah you can make the market move you can 
But the person that's going to capitalize it on that is your institutional investor who says, well, you know what? That's too cheap. I'm going to make money. So that's ah, something you got to think about. But here's my question for you, Matt. Yeah. Is the institutional investor different than the retail investor for in terms of like ultimately how they're making buy and sell decisions? I think that they are different to an extent because I think that with enough, I mean, there's always going to be that person that says, you know, I'm, I'm scared. I'm moving to cash and I'm just going to stay there. And they actually don't get back in really, no matter what the market does, because they're scared, right? Like it could drop 80% and they they could be sitting on the sidelines saying, well, I think it's going to go to zero and I'm not going to do it anymore. But you know, I don't think that the institutional investors ever going to let it get that far because they just know better, right? They've done it long enough. And computers also are doing a lot of these big block trades too. So, yeah. And, and I think it's, I actually think it's a trick question because where I'm leading you as a witness right now is mm -hmm. that um, I think what you just suggested is the institutional investor will make different decisions than the retail investor yeah. because they respond to data differently. Yes. And as a result, that tends to play to their advantage. Absolutely. Right. Uh, but ultimately, if we talk about they're just looking at data to make decisions. Yeah. Right? They have the same data. Well, and they may actually have well, more they might data have, in some cases. Right, Institutions but, get some interesting access uh, because if you're going to try to gauge mass psychology, some of it's also, okay, well, do I believe in the company? Do I think other people are going to get behind it too? And I, can I get in front of those people in the trend? Okay, some well, that's of it's one predicting. of them. Right? Get in front of a trend early. Uh, am I getting it at a price that I think is cheap relative to what other people in the future will be willing to pay for it. Mm -hmm. Okay, you got to predict the future a little bit for that, right? But some of our best investors historically have done that really well. You know, Warren Buffett's one of those that did that really well. Back in the 90s, Peter Lynch did that really well, right? So these were famous investors that managed to just have the golden touch. Now, but here's the question. Did they have the golden touch where they just statistically the anomaly that happened to rise to the top? Or were they just really good at following their own rules? Well, and that's it too, is that, because the funny thing is the rules, they, they work until they don't, mm -hmm. right? I mean, the same things that worked, uh, there's some fundamental principles of investing that have largely not changed over time. Yeah. But I, I use this example, it's a terrible, gruesome example, but it's just so useful that I, I still use it anyway. And that is war, right? The basic principles of war are unchanged throughout history. The tactics have changed radically, right? Mm -hmm. The technology and the ways that wars are conducted have really changed. And as a, as a result, it looks different now than it did hundreds of years ago. But the underlying principles are the same. Investing is kind of like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like the underlying fundamental principles are largely unchanged, but the tactics and the technology and the speed of information, all of that has made it very, very different. Right. Now, I do think there's another important segue to consider, though, that you sort of hinted at with the institutional versus the retail investor. And that is that the institution not only sometimes has an inst they have like an information advantage, but they also have a scale advantage, right? Mm -hmm. When you're playing with really, really huge pots of money and you can deploy it over a period of time and average your way into the market or you can buy you a big chunk at one level, you may move the market itself, mm -hmm. right? And if you don't believe me, then go try to buy a house in some really hot markets. Like go try to buy a house in Phoenix right now where hedge funds were buying them up. 
right? Prices shot up and shot up and shot up. And they kind of priced out the typical retail buyer because they were became the marketplace, right? Mm-hmm. So here was institutional access point driving the price a lot higher. So if you can become a significant bidder in the market, you can you actually can move change the price. the price for yourself. Yeah, because yeah. you effectively start to become a market maker, mm-hmm. right? So I can drive the price higher because I can put more demand behind this stock and drive the price up. Okay, that incidentally is a very in very simplified term how the Federal Reserve manipulated interest rates through quantitative easing, mm-hmm. right? They became a buyer of treasuries. So the U.S. Treasury prints the, you know, issues the treasuries, and the Federal Reserve bought them. And they kept buying them. And so for if an they bought them, and it didn't matter if anybody else wanted to, they were the demand side of the curve. Mm-hmm. So by continuing to buy more and more and more, they drove the price of the bonds higher, which meant the relative interest rate dropped, right? Because mm-hmm. bonds have an inverse relationship. So, and as I look at, all right, I'm looking at the clock, and I realize we got to take one last break, but. I want to cover one last thing, and I'm going to just give a hint to you that there's a mechanical thing about the markets, too, that can move the price. And we're going to cover that right after this last break. Okay. Stick around. This is Dave Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. And you're listening to The True Wild on News Radio 1240, KQN, and 93.9 FM. All right, gang, welcome back to the True Wealth Radio Show. Final segment here, and if you're just tuning in, you're just going to have to catch the podcast to get caught up. I don't have time to recap it at this point. Uh, I will tell you this. Uh, we're still live streaming it, so you can go grab some of that, too. We were a little late getting the live stream started. Sorry. Uh, Matt, when we left our heroes at the break, we were talking about a mechanical issue that moves the market, right? We mm-hmm. talked about the psychology of the buyer. We talked about institutional versus retail a little bit. Right. We talked about how people, you know, use data improperly or incorrectly or they fit it to the narrative they want to see. But there's another one that we saw uh, during the pandemic. There's a unique cocktail, but it was a structural or a structural or mechanical exploit in the market that forces things to move. When we started right? printing money. It wasn't just a money printing thing, although I think it, there was a combination of the money printing and then the fact that a bunch of people were forced out of their jobs and they were wondering what to do with themselves and they're locked in their house. Mm-hmm. And so what we saw was this massive influx of day traders in the retail space. It's true. How many people opened a Robinhood account and just pumped Tons money of in? people. And then Robinhood did what they called gamification, right? They made their app interface feel like a game. Mm-hmm. It was novel to do, and they're like, "Oh, well, no trading costs." And okay, and that's that not time, true. There are trading costs. They're just paid for in an indirect way, uh, in a way that they sell the information of who's trading when downstream to hedge funds. And so the hedge funds got the information before you did, and, and so that was part of it. They they were paying for it through order flow, which gave them again an information advantage because they could see where big blocks of money were moving and they could get in front of them. So that was part of it, but. Who remembers GameStop? Oh, boy. Right? GameStop, which is a kind of a, a, a not a really remarkable company. They, they basically started as like a, a used video game trading store. And yeah. They, 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 you could buy video games and so forth. But a lot of these games are moving online, and people thought, this is a dying business model, right? I mean, how's this, this company going to survive? And then there's just the weirdest thing happened. Right? A Reddit board 
Yeah, the Reddit board and a bunch of individuals started communicating with each other via the internet. And somebody realized that somewhere a group of hedge funds had shorted GameStop. They were mm -hmm. expecting the stock to drop, but they shorted. And because of the brokers, meaning the the facilitator of the buying and selling, right? The, the exchange broker allowed them to borrow more shares than actually existed. And they sold more shares than existed in the market. Like the, and so somebody realized that and convinced a bunch of retail investors to go and buy up anything they could find and refuse to sell. And then there were margin calls. And a margin call is when you've borrowed money to to sell a stock you don't yet own so that you can buy it back at a lower price and make and a so profit. And so all these hedge fund guys were looking at this saying, hey, we got to like, we well, got to buy that so stock. So the, the retail market started buying it and the price started going up. And all of a sudden, they didn't have enough money credit in their account. So these hedge funds needed to either add money to the account to keep their credits intact, or they had to buy the stock and replace it to, to cover their short position. And they couldn't find any stock because all the retail people bought it up and they refused to sell. And so they had to keep raising the price because there was this was a supply and demand exploit, right? The demand got super high and the supply was super low. And so the price of the stock went crazy and shot up and up and up. And that was a structural problem in the market where somebody mechanically legally had to buy that stock and there was none available which meant they had to pay more and more and more mm -hmm. and that stock went up to hundreds of dollars i think it got over 500 dollars a share at one point and many people bought it for like ten dollars yeah. eight dollars a share so made crazy money on this mechanical exploit so now that by the way is real shouldn't have happened the fact that like the brokerage firms should have never allowed, they shouldn't have let that many shares get shorted in the first place. So there's tremendous blowback now for this. Because well, and do you remember how much blowback there was when Robinhood halted the trading? On oh GameStop? yeah, well Robinhood, yeah. I have a, I have to be careful about this on, on air. But what it appeared to be was that Robinhood shut down people's ability to buy the stock, yeah, yeah. but they would allow them to sell it, and they would let the institutional counterparty mm -hmm. buy the stock back so they basically bailed the, rigged the game against their retail investor at that yeah. point and that has just created all kinds of blowback and trust issues with robin hood and it just fans the flames of the distrust of wall street and i gotta be honest i get it because mm -hmm. because People may see me as institutional or you as institutional because we, we are professionals in this, but we're not an institutional trader. We serve the retail marketplace. Right. And so I look at this and go, that's rigging the game. Mm -hmm. That's not cool. Right. Right. And so I, I'm not, I, I'm Main Street interacting with Wall Street. I'm not Wall Street direct. And so, yeah, yeah we were just as angry about right. that. Oh, yeah. I don't like unethical capitalism. I don't think that's capitalism. That's why that's we have our yeah. That's why we have our T-shirts, right? Like yeah, ethical I mean, capitalists. An ethical capitalist. It's it's like a profits without harming others, and that is a broadly encompassing statement. What's okay? really wild is a lot of people don't think that's possible. It is possible. And it is. It is. Right? Like you can be sensitive to environmental needs, and you can be sensitive to within reason social needs. Like nobody's ever going to be happy because some people just look for reasons to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, of like, course, it, it just blows me away in this world, by the way, that like we've got it made. OK, like you've got 
still with the threat of supply chains and lack of food, but and things are expensive, I get it, but largely climate controlled, comfortable, modern medicine, food, transportation, internet. I mean, like we have got it made and we invent reasons to be unhappy. Mm -hmm. Like the more luxury and that we have, the more unhappy people seem to conjure and the more exotic they're wrecking the, the reason for being unhappy. I'm like, man, we just really define ourselves in misery instead of looking at the glass being half full. So yeah. anyway, that's there's your true wealth takeaway of the day. It's like, guys, what if the glass was actually so half full? We need you're saying we need to have a little travel back in time to the fifties when air conditioning didn't exist and families well, had you one know, car. As soon as you say that, somebody's <laughs> gonna go, Well, yeah, what about the civil rights movement and this and the other? That's not see, you can't win. Yeah, that one, right. Like yeah. that's not the I'm not going for the gotcha there. I'm just saying why don't we all acknowledge that while there are things that we can improve, there's also a lot of stuff that's not that we didn't get wrong. Like there's a lot of things that are better. Yeah, there's always room for more, but it's just not as it's not the end of the world horrible. Right? The the, the trend is largely from the lower left to the upper right, and that's just how it is, man. So anyway, uh, there's there's your key takeaways. I actually you can get to the main point. We'll have to do it uh, sometime next week. About can the we four like do quadrants a part of investing. Two? Can we do a part two next week? We'll have to do a part two. But we're okay. out of time for this week. I hear the music playing. So Matt, how do they reach us if they have investment or financial planning needs? Give us a ring at 541-375-0898. All right. So there you go, gang. Uh, that's how you reach us. You can also check us out at littlejohnfs.com. And don't forget to subscribe and get that podcast. Until next time, this has been David Littlejohn. And Matt Dixon. You've listened to True Wealth on News Radio 93.9 FM at 1240 KQED. The preceding program was paid for by Littlejohn Financial Services. The opinions and views expressed may not reflect those of Brook Communications, its affiliates, or its employees.